The Jewish views on Pride 2017, the annual event saw its largest ever Jewish delegation. The JMI Youth Big Band, how the young musician in your life could be performing at this year's Klezmer in the Park. And the Forever Project, the initiative by the National Holocaust Center, has been shortlisted for a National Lottery Award. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A detective sergeant from Essex Police is up for a bravery award for saving the life of a Jewish resident of Jerusalem who was being violently attacked by three Arab men. 45-year-old Richard Burgess, who's studying to become a priest, was on his first visit to Israel earlier this year when the assault happened. Sergeant Burgess made sure the Jewish man ran off before tackling his assailants and was nearly killed by them. Two men were later convicted for the attack. The London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has urged the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, to outlaw Hezbollah's political and military wings. It comes after flags of the terror group were openly flown during last month's Al Houds Day parade in the capital. A loophole in the law currently allows support for the political wing, but not the military. Conservative and Labour Friends of Israel and the Board of Deputies are among those who've also called for the government to proscribe the group. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu read from the Bible during his weekly cabinet meeting to illustrate Israel's connection to Hebron. It came after UNESCO declared Hebron's old city an endangered Palestinian World Heritage Site. The decision is the second anti-Israel resolution in a week. Israel's ambassador to the UN called it an act of aggression against the Jewish people. A cutting-edge exhibit featuring 3D interactive holograms of Holocaust survivors telling their stories and answering questions has been nominated for a major award. Called The Forever Project and based at the National Holocaust Centre in Nottingham, it's reached the finals of the UK's favourite lottery-funded programmes. The award ceremony will be broadcast on the BBC in September. And finally, Radiohead frontman Tom York has hit back at the filmmaker Ken Loach over his criticism of the band's forthcoming concert in Israel. Loach has repeatedly asked the band to cancel the concert on July the 19th as part of a cultural boycott of the country. York said performing in Tel Aviv was no more an endorsement of Benjamin Netanyahu than playing in the US would be of Donald Trump. It's since emerged that Loach's film, I, Daniel Blake, was on at a number of cinemas in Tel Aviv. That's the new Sport Now with Andrew. Thank you very much, Vivian. Team GB's Maccabea Games campaign has got off to a promising start, with the squad winning 17 medals after the first seven days of action. On course to eclipse the 24 they won in 2013, this year has already seen a first ever GB medal win in lacrosse. Staying in Israel... Hapa El Besheva have it all to do if they're to reach next season's Champions League after they began their qualifying campaign with a 2-1 home win over Honved. Knowing a 1-0 win for the Hungarians in Wednesday's second leg will be enough to knock them out, manager Barak Baka said, The scoreline isn't great, but at least we won and our fate is in our own hands. And finally, next year's Giro d'Italia will begin in Jerusalem. The 101st edition of the prestigious cycling race will commence with a time trial on 5th of May and could then follow with two road stages, potentially ending in Tel Aviv. It will be the first time a Grand Tour has begun outside of Europe. 
Remember, you can follow all the progress of Team GB at the Maccabea Games together with all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views, sponsored by Little Big Leaders. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Let's have a look at the front page and the headline reads, British cop saves Israeli from armed Jerusalem gang. This is a hero of an hour if ever I heard, and then some. It is indeed. We have a knight in shining armour on our front page. Essex policeman who was minding his own business on holiday in Israel as he went to visit the grave of Oscar Schindler on Mount Zion when he saw three males assaulting a Jewish man wearing a kippah. They were also armed with a claw hammer and noxious gas. He, without a care for his own safety, like Jason Bourne and and Jack Bauer, he leaped into action, clasped them around the, the throat, pushed them away. The Jewish man made good his escape, and he's now up for a bravery award, and all his police colleagues are hailing his bravery. He uh, was actually struck with the hammer at least once and almost was struck a second time, which could have proved fatal, but he did it in a very bold and brilliant way, and let's hope that he wins the award. You know what's very strange about this, and I don't mean strange peculiar, I just mean strange as in I would imagine that it affects a lot of us in this way, is that I'd imagine that if any of us were put into that kind of situation, I know everyone says you never know how you're going to react until it happens to you, but I can't help but get the feeling that most people would probably turn the other way. Yeah, of course, a lot of people would. And the most amazing thing is that Detective Sergeant Richard Burgess was actually off duty. He didn't have to put himself in danger. He could have just walked off and pretended he was just a civilian, but he, he put himself in danger. And I think if, if you if you look at the you know the number of terrorist attacks and disasters we've had recently, you see the bravery of emergency services. And it's just another example of how they put themselves in harm's way. I wouldn't want to get on this guy's bad side. I mean, he's, he's a burly fella, but a gentle giant, uh, apparently. And well, I think this man should you know, count his blessings that this guy was here to help him out. I'm sure he does. And bravo, say all of us. Right, let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper this week. And it's sort of based on that age-old adage of one Jew and heaven only knows how many opinions. There seem to be many stories that could be causing rifts, I think is the best way of putting it, amongst the community. I mean, for as long as I've been doing this job, there's always been lots of stories of of rifts and divisions within the community. But I I really feel it's it's coming to a head in the last few weeks. We have got three or four stories in the paper now. And I think a lot of it is sparked by the decision in Israel for the chief rabbinate, the orthodox chief rabbinate, to oversee conversions, the only people that could be the authority over who is a Jew, and obviously the very contentious decision about the Kotel and there'd be no permanent egalitarian space. Now, this week, there's a a blacklist that has emerged from the office of the Israeli chief rabbi, although they have denied that it has come from them, blacklisting rabbis across the world, 24 different countries, including rabbis here in the UK, some progressive rabbis, you would imagine them to blacklist, but also an orthodox rabbi, which is incredibly surprising. So that's one story. Can I just ask, just to get an understanding of this story a little better for those who aren't maybe familiar with it, where does it come from in terms of where is the association with the office of the Israeli chief rabbi and yet they've denied it? Well, the the head of the Israeli chief rabbi, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi, David Lau, has 
has, has denied any knowledge of this so it's unofficial it could be a, a document that was never meant to be seen or ever see the light of day however it, it exists a lot of people are very upset about the fact that they have been uh, I mean blacklisting it's, a, it's a, a terrible term meanwhile the American conservative Jewish movement are saying that the diaspora in Israel are now on the edge and they don't feel that they have a home as much as they they once did in Israel that the 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 question of a single national Jewish identity is being undermined by um, this this conflict and, and animosity between the different sides of Judaism. And then finally, we have a very interesting op-ed this week by Izzy Posen, who was a, a chassid in the, in the Stanford Hill community, who broke away and decided he wanted to lead a secular life. Now no longer talks to his siblings, has only a limited contact with his parents. And he is saying that the orthodox modern movements in the UK should sever all their ties with Haredim for, and I'll quote here, he's saying Haredim are a Annoyed by the progressive voices in orthodoxy and the progressives are upset with the Haredim and it's about time we understand that we are very different communities we do not need the approval of Haredi rabbis so there's a lot of anger a lot of upset and a lot of internal strife not only in the UK Jewish community but across the diaspora do you know what Jack the thing that I think that a lot of people would struggle with this is that there has always been Part of the beauty of Judaism is that there have been so many different opinions and that we are such a diverse and broad-minded community. Surely that's all this is. This doesn't necessarily need to be anything to worry about, is it? Well, it could be something to worry about because in Israel there are strictly Orthodox Jews in the government, but in America there's a very large and growing Reform Jewish community. And for a long time Israel has taken that for granted in a way. They've assumed that Reform Jews will support the Jewish state. But actually, if Israel's government is going to be hostile or, or it's going to distance Reform Jews from Israel, then their support might not be as forthcoming as it has been in, in years gone by. In Israel, Reform Jews have even been considering a boycott of Israel. I mean, that's how serious it's now getting. Israel needs to really consider the relationship between Reform Jews and the state. Is it going to be reciprocal? Are they going to support each other? Or is it going to be a position where Israel thinks it has the support of Reform Jews when it doesn't? And later down the line, if there is a, a war or a catastrophe or something, you know, will Reform Jews come to Israel's assistance financially or, or in terms of legitimacy? You know, this is a serious situation. Yeah, I think Jack completely hit the nail on the head. This is all down to political manoeuvring. Netanyahu's fragile coalition is propped up by orthodox parties and orthodox lobby groups, etc. There's a lot of horse trading that goes on. So when the government decides to only give the orthodox Israeli chief rabbinate overview on conversions and they, and they, they eliminate egalitarian space or, or, at the Kotel, these are political decisions, they're not religious decisions. But of course, it sends an appalling message to the diaspora and to progressive voices. But of course, I think we all know that at the end of the day, this is political leverage either way. And, and I think the position of Israel as is the central heartbeat of, of world Jewry, I, I don't think that's going to be undermined. See, of course, the problem is, though, that there will be those listening who think that if Israel has survived however many thousands of years in whatever guise, shall we say, with various religious rules in place to start changing them now there are those out there who some might say quite rightly question who are we to start changing those rules and those 
laws of religion. So it is a tricky situation. It's about moving with the times, but at the same time, it's about observing and respecting, frankly, our traditions and customs that have stood us in good stead for many, many thousands of years. It is a tricky one. Yeah. Very, very interesting times. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the founding fathers, Ben Gurion, I don't think they'd be very surprised that these sort of things are taking place now if they were still alive to witness it. The separation of, of synagogue and state, um, I suppose you'd call it, in, in Israel is, will be an ongoing discussion uh, now more so than ever. Let us pay tribute to a man who's stepping down from Work Avenue. Shraga Zaltzman is saying farewell to Work Avenue after a decade at the helm. Is that right? Yeah, Shraga Zaltzman, I'm sure many of our listeners will have come across him or even thank him for setting up their own careers or businesses. Trainee Tradee was the, the organisation that he helped set up and then that turned into Work Avenue, which is a wonderful hub in Finchley. After a decade at the helm, this one man business generator has decided this week to to step down and hand over the reins to his chief operating officer Debbie Sheldon so it's in good hands and I just wanted to pay tribute to somebody who we've worked very closely with here at the Jewish News and, and hope that his career goes from strength to strength. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's where we have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget, you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. The annual Gay Pride March took place on July the 8th, and despite being a Shabbat, it saw its largest Jewish delegation, with approximately 200 people from six different organisations. One of those organisations was Keshet UK, the very first UK Jewish gay and lesbian organisation which started in the 1970s. Dave Shaw is from Keshet UK and joins us on the line now. Dave, start, if you will, just by telling us exactly what was the Jewish delegation? How was it made up on Saturday? Which organisations were there? Who took part? Was there anyone of noteworthy status? That kind of thing. At this year's Pride in London, we had six different member organisations came. We had Keshet UK, who are the charity that ensure that no one has to choose between their Jewish and LGBT plus identity. We also had Gay Jews in London, which is a social group. We had Parents of Jewish Gays and Lesbians. We had Imaot for Avot, which are same-sex parents with young families. We also had Jewish Gay and Lesbian Group which are the oldest LGBT plus Jewish social group in the country. And we also had Beit Klal Yisrael, which are a liberal synagogue, which are made up mainly of LGBT plus members. And we were also joined by uh, members of RSY Netzer, who were, gave us fabulous singing throughout the day and really gave a nice jovial atmosphere to the event. I think probably the most high profile person we had there would have been Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner of the reform movement. And she was great, also full of energy throughout the day. It was really nice that she was able to join us with RSY Netzer. Something very telling about this, knowing that it was the largest delegation that the Jewish community has put forward for pride was such a stark contrast to what we read quite recently about what happened in Chicago, where the flag with the Mark and David on it, the rainbow flag, of course, I'm referring to with the Mark and David on it, was, I suppose, banned is the right word, because it was through fear that it might cause disruption or upset to other groups. So it feels as if it's quite a stark contrast between the pride here in London and maybe the pride celebrations in Chicago this year. Most definitely. And, and I personally was certainly worried that we were going to face resistance and backlash from people 
who were aware of what happened in Chicago and trying to use that to their advantage. But actually, we had no negative feedback or negative energy at all. We were welcome to rapturous applause the whole way down the parade route. People really proud that we were there and able to stand united and show such a diverse flavor of the UK Jewish community in terms of both LGBT plus people and allies. It really was quite amazing. You know, there are going to be some people listening to this, though, Dave, who are going to struggle with a couple of things. And I think you know where I'm going with this, that obviously the religious element of Judaism would have us believe that the LGBTQ plus way of life is not, shall we say, recognized by orthodoxy in Judaism. And furthermore, to add to that, obviously, pride took place on a Shabbat. Do you ever find that maintaining your Jewish identity and LGBTQ plus identity can sometimes clash in that way and it can be quite difficult? Well, I think first of all, it's important to distinguish between people who identify as LGBT plus in their identity and living and you know what some might call a gay lifestyle so i think those two things are very different and shouldn't be conflated what's also worth noting is that we had a number of from people who joined us on the parade this time some people marched all the way from the notting hill area of london on foot obviously to the parade and a couple of them were even allies so you know it's clear that this is an issue that is rallying people from across the community whether they be LGBT plus identifying themselves or whether they are uh, in fact allies. And, you know, for me, that was a great, great strength uh, and sign of solidarity that those people were able to join us and chose to join us. Especially Jewish members, though, of LGBTQ plus community. It must feel as if there's quite a stark contrast just generally in terms of the acceptance that is out there now versus however many years ago where it was almost unfathomable to put Judaism and LGBTQ plus in the same category together. Yeah, but I think that's a testament to how far British society has changed in that time. Well, it's um, also you know, obviously it stands in Israel as well, doesn't it? Let's not forget that Tel Aviv has one of the largest pride celebrations in the world, doesn't it? Of, of course. But I mean, I think there's still a shift definitely, definitely in this country and more increasingly globally towards acceptance and equality of LGBT plus people. 20 years ago, it was very much in the Jewish community in, in, in the UK, there was very much a don't ask, don't tell policy. Chief Rabbi Jakubowicz didn't feel able to embrace the LGBT plus community at that time. Rabbi Sachs definitely started inroads with the community and Rabbi Mervis has been very forthcoming with engaging the LGBT plus community in this country. Kesha UK have met with him and his office a couple of times. He tweeted warmly about our meeting, which is something which we never would have seen before. And he openly said that homophobia has no place in the United Synagogue. And that shift in position is very uh, noble and worthy and very, very welcomed by members of the community. Tell us about some of the daily struggles that Keshet UK has to come up against, because I'd imagine that it is very similar to the way that, say, Israeli organisations have to try and go and combat what I suppose can only be described as ignorance, people not really understanding a certain way of life now, whether that be a pro-Israel stance, whether that be an LGBTQ plus way of life, whatever it is. Do you have to deal with ignorance on a daily basis? And if so, how do you go about combating it? We do experience ignorance from across the community. This is definitely decreasing as time goes on. 
one of the main things that Keshet UK does to counteract that is we run diversity and inclusion training, which is as standard as a three-hour training that we can do in synagogues, community organizations, university societies, youth groups, and schools. And that could be with kind of teachers or with governors or even with students. And what we're finding is the more that people talk about this conversation, particularly with allies, the, the less resistance that LGBT people face to being their honest, true selves. But surely the problem with that, though, is that synagogues have got to be reciprocal of that in the first place. They've got to want to, as it were, welcome you in. And if they don't, how do you overcome that? Well, as I say, we're seeing a lot more organisations coming to us. So when we first started Kesha UK and we started this inclusion training programme, I personally was interested to see who we'd be able to engage with. Now we're actually fully booked up until March 2018 for trainings. So there's clearly a demand in the in the community from all sections of the political and religious sections of the community. Just finally, because I always ask this to a lot of guests, I would like to know that sort of from you personally, based on the work that you do, if you had a vision for a world that in which we lived in for the future, in terms of moving forward, what would be the ultimate goal, if you will? Oh, I think it's actually quite easy for me to answer that question. You know, I actually see a world in the not too distant future where Keshit UK doesn't exist and where people don't need to come out because there is nothing to come out about. You know, people love who they love and that we're moving towards a society where that is seen and uh, embraced and that people don't have to choose between their Jewish and LGBT plus identities and therefore it's no longer an issue. Dave Shaw from Keshet UK talking to us about Pride 2017's Jewish delegation. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This episode is sponsored by Little Big Leaders and is brought to you in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition will be our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by community volunteer Andy Lucas and actress Kim Ismay. They'll be discussing Jews' affiliation with music. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Sarah Coward from the National Holocaust Centre about their Forever Project. But first, Judaism has often been affiliated with music. In fact, musically speaking, Jews have some of the most diverse and impressive talents on offer. Well, the Jewish Music Institute, or JMI, wants to find some of the next generation of talent with their youth big band. The finished ensemble will end up performing at this year's Klezmer in the Park. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been finding out more about this for us by speaking to Raphael Knapp from the JMI. Kate started by asking Raphael to tell us a little bit about the history of JMI. Jewish Music Institute is an organisation, it's a charity, music charity, that's been going for about 30 years now. And it was started by a wonderful lady called Geraldine Auerbach. And it basically is all about music of Jewish origin. So I mean, a lot of people know it because of klezmer music. It's been heavily linked with klezmer more recently, but... There's all sorts of other music out there that needs to be talked about and and listened to, including suppressed music. This is music, Jewish music around the Second World War that was forbidden in, in Germany and by the Nazis. And these are potentially composers who would have been as big as anyone else who unfortunately met their horrible end due to the Nazis. The Jewish Music Institute is composers and researchers and players. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's it's a it's a broad organisation, and we have links all over the world in America, in Israel, of course, and in England, in the UK, and and other parts of Europe. More recently, which is actually very interesting, because our director right now, she had a very famous dad who was Joe Loss. So Jennifer Jankel is our wonderful director at the moment. Her dad was probably one of the most recognised big band leaders the UK has ever produced. And right now, we've actually made a massive departure, which has never been done before. We're actually starting a big band for music of Jewish origin. Talking of big band, I've been seeing these wonderful yellow flyers everywhere, calling upon young musicians yes. to, to perform in the park. That's correct. Well, who are they performing to? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, this is the, the brand new project that we've got going on. It's for teenagers who have a massive passion for jazz music, 20th century contemporary jazz music. And yeah, they've got a brilliant opportunity to perform in front of up to 5,000 people this year at Klezmer in the Park, which is our annual festival that happens in Regent's Park every year. Right. And what sort of level of talent do you expect? It's open to teenagers who are of roughly grade five or equivalent ability. The idea is if you can read, sight read music, that's ideally what we're looking for. It doesn't have to be though. I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're open to people who might be slightly under that. We've got three rehearsals in the lead up to the big day. So not a lot of time to get everything together. You to get but your act together. Exactly. Pack but your it's, band. Yeah. So the band leader, Sam Eastman, he's organising it all. He's going to be sorting out the repertoire and yeah it's going to be an amazing opportunity give us a sneak preview of some of the repertoire are you allowed to do that i'm not it's very <sighs> top secret I'm but it's poly- klezmer yeah. music it's not actually klezmer no? music no so okay. one of the things about klezmer in the park is that it's, it's not actually, klezmer in the park it's is it's, it in a park <laughs> it is definitely in a park i will give you that yes it's partly klezmer but we're actually moving into other types of music as well. So this year, we're we're doing a lot more about Sephardi-based music, Misraki music. So we've got a wonderful musician called Yair Dalal coming over from Israel. He's actually an Iraqi Jew, and he plays violin and oud, and he sings. He's he's big deal, well famous. Among many other people, we've got the Balladi Blues Ensemble. We've got Bisbas, another. Safari Jew. Brilliant, brilliant combination of different acts. But yeah, Klezmer so people, obviously is involved. A young person, a teenager wants to join in to be part of this fabulous festival. What's the selection process? How do they submit themselves? Yes, if they want to sign up to join the big band, we've got two rehearsals coming up this month on the 26th and the 27th of July. We have flyers and you can find more information on our website by clicking the relevant link and there's an application form that you can download and send it back to me at the email address provided. Do you interview them or give them an audition? No, there won't be an audition. It, the, 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 essentially, the first rehearsal is a chance for everyone to and get together. And we weed out people that maybe yeah. aren't up to scratch. I wouldn't say weeding out. I'd say it's more about finding out which instruments are available, who we've got. And I mean, the great thing about Sam is he's incredibly flexible. He's got backup plans upon backup plans so there's plan d e f g h i j k etc so it will depend entirely on who's going to be around and he's very flexible in terms of the great so that's the kids now yeah. let's look at the audience what do we do bring a picnic when do we come where do we go how do we even know where it is in the park 
It's at Regent's Park Bandstand, and it begins at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when the big band will make their debut. And then what it goes. What that? It's on Sunday, the 10th of September. Very easy to find at the bandstand. And there'll be all sorts of food available. Obviously, you're absolutely welcome to bring your own food if you would like to. It's an all ages event. So it's, it's a real cross section of society that comes along Jewish, non Jewish. And it's a real great celebration, really. So, and it goes all the way up until five o'clock. I think there's going to be five different acts in that time. And you don't need to buy tickets, you just come in. It's free, absolutely free event. Please do come. I can't say that's at many events these days. I know, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Very often they have these stalls, it becomes a whole event. I remember going one year, there were were sort of stalls around the edge. Is it going to be like that this time? Absolutely, yep. There's all sorts of stalls that are going to be there. There's also going to be a kids area as well. That's going to be great for, for parents bringing younger children. It's called the JMI Educational Children's Zone. And so that's going to be presented in in combination with JW3 Jewish Museum and the Spiro Institute. And it's all day drop in children's activity zone, which is going to be housed in, in the main marquee. And that's, as I say, that's solely for entertaining children with lots of free creative crafting activities as well. If anybody's just a little bit worried, given the current climate, without being alarmist, is the security around? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the, the security is going to be absolutely there all day long and we've got a really good close working relationship with the Royal Parks Metropolitan Police and the Community Security Trust and they all know about the event and uh, they know yeah we've been making the appropriate arrangements. Raphael Knapp from the Jewish Music Institute talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about their Youth Big Band, the initiative to search for the next generation of Jewish musical talent. Don't forget the final ensemble will get to perform at this year's Klezmer in the Park. And for more information, including how you or the young musician in your life could apply, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment, we'll be this week's schmooze. Make sure that you tune in to our live stream on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime. It's a great way for you to share some of your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, in recent times, we've seen many initiatives to ensure that these stories from the Holocaust are never forgotten. Numerous organisations have worked tirelessly to record survivors so as to educate future generations about the horrors of Nazi Germany. Well, the National Holocaust Centre in Nottingham has been shortlisted for the National Lottery Awards because of their efforts with their Forever Project. To find out why, community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Sarah Coward, the development director and deputy chief executive from the National Holocaust Centre. Diana started by asking Sarah to tell us exactly what is the Forever Project. The Forever Project is an amazing new digital project from the National Holocaust Centre and Museum. It really solves a critical problem for 
the Centre and for Holocaust education in general, because Holocaust survivors have shared their testimony for many years with school children. But unfortunately, each year we, we very sadly lose survivors, either because they pass away or because they're, they're not well enough to tell their stories in person anymore. The Forever Project records in 3D digital film the survivors telling their stories, but also records answers to around a thousand questions for each survivor. And then applying a range of technologies, it enables children in the future to be able to meet those survivors and ask those survivors questions and, importantly, to hear their responses. So, Sarah, these are going to be survivors who, as you say, will pass away, but their visual image will persist or still be available via this hologram and the school children who I know come into the centre every day don't they I mean you have teams and teams of school children who come and visit you we do is that how shall I put it is that not going to be slightly creepy to see people as a hologram answering questions that the school children will put to them who have already passed away not at all. When we were actually testing with school children, one of the things that really touched me was one of the girls saying, he seems like such a lovely man and he's got such important memories to share. And I think that feedback really demonstrated that you can build this really human connection between young people and survivors even when they're no longer with us. You've got 1,400, actually, of the most common questions that children will ask for each survivor. So each survivor's hologram picture mm. and little speech would last how long? Is that going to be throughout the whole of a school trip, say about an hour or so in the hall? We've filmed 10 survivors for this project so far. Each of them are experienced speakers and they normally speak between 40 minutes and just over an hour. So they do share their testimony within the project for the length of time they would normally, normally speak. And then children, as they do now, have got the opportunity to ask them questions. So you've got an hour-long testimony followed by questions from the floor questions from the floor in exactly the same way as it would work with Stephen Frank or Rudy Oppenheimer or any of the speakers that currently speak at the centre. These are going to be preserved forevermore, which of course is, is exactly the name of the project, isn't it? That's, exactly. and, and now, if you win the award, and let's hope, we're all keeping our fingers crossed for you, you've reached the finals of the National Lottery Award. And if you win it, what are you going to do with this cash prize of £5,000? How is it going to benefit the project? Well, what will be really wonderful is that we would love to do some more filming. We would also really like to enable these testimonies to be more widely accessible, not just at the National Holocaust Centre, but more widely available through an online version. So the funding would actually go towards enabling us to do that. And the funding, which we hope you get, will ensure that the, these testimonies from the Holocaust survivors are in fact 
never lost. Never lost and never lost and available to thousands of children in the future. Well, that's that's an incredibly wonderful aim, let's put it that way, in order to project the, or rather to pursue the project from now onwards. When did it actually all start and whose idea was it in the first place? Well, we, the National Holocaust Centre, obviously we have around 40 survivors who regularly speak at the centre and have done for years. And so for a number of years, five, between five and 10 years, we've really been looking at what how we can address this problem in the future. What do we do to bring these stories to life when survivors are no longer able to tell their stories in person? So we were really looking at how we could use film, use video. And as technology developed, there were different opportunities to, to solve that problem. So we've really been working on this project for about three and a half years now. Um, as long as that, right. Yes, yes. Um, from really from the outset in terms of thinking about it and considering the, the response and then having to raise the money to get the project going and then obviously filming survivors and applying and developing the technology. We've also been working in collaboration with the Shoah Foundation in the United States, who've been working on a, a sort of similar project in Los Angeles. And the project is called, am I right in saying that the best heritage project category is what you're actually going yes. for? We're in the heritage category, which is absolutely fantastic. And and one thing I'd like to say is one of the reasons why we'd be so keen to to win the award is it's such a testament to the survivors who shared their stories for such a long time. And we really believe that they need to be recognised for all of the, the work and efforts that they've put into Holocaust education. So we hope that the efforts they put into this project will be recognised as well. That sounds fantastic, Sarah. We're all behind you. Thank you. <laughs> and all the details will be on the Jewish Views website. So I won't ask you to give them to us all now, but we're just hoping that you're the ones who win the prize. And I gather that the, the whole award ceremony will be broadcasted on BBC One in September. Absolutely. And also if people want to vote, um, one of the easiest ways to do that is, is Twitter. You can use hashtag NLA Forever P and anybody who tweets or retweets will their vote will count to our success. So that's um, hashtag NLA Forever P. Sarah Coward, the Development Director and Deputy Chief Executive for the National Holocaust Centre in Nottingham, talking to community editor Diana Toman there about their Forever project, which has been shortlisted by the National Lottery Awards. For more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the link in which you can vote for them. Okay, just ahead of our Jewish schmooze, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Suzanne Edwards is from Little Big Leaders and joins me in the studio now. Suzanne, welcome back to the Jewish Views. For those who might not know, just remind us, what is it that Little Big Leaders do? Little Big Leaders is a summer school which takes place in the local area, which is in Edgware, up at London Academy, Rickmansworth School and also at Bushy Academy. We teach children from the age of three and a half to five to learn to read via phonics and writing programme. And we teach the five up to the 11 plus children to undertake their maths and their English, helping them to pass their assessments. 
Now, maths and English is what we're going to focus on for this week. And so what is it that little big leaders do differently when it comes to teaching maths and English to their pupils? Well, I think the biggest thing really is that we teach children in small groups as compared to those being taught in a school because they can be taught in quite a large group. And unfortunately, some children don't always grasp those concepts. So our focus really is to fill in all the gaps for the children who may not understand some of the areas that they've covered at school, but also to help children to excel in their learning to be at least two years ahead of their level ability. So our focus is to help children to really accelerate their learning and also to help them improve and to fill those gaps. And how does Little Big Leaders teaching their pupils maths and English work in cahoots with the schools? Because obviously the schools are going to have one way of teaching. You guys are going to have another. Does that run the risk at all of clashing and maybe confusing children? The idea really is not to confuse the children, but to help them to understand what they're doing in their schools in terms of their academic ability. A lot of the tutors who also work for us work in the academic arena in many state schools and also private and grammar schools. So a lot of their knowledge has been input into creating a lot of the booklets, the worksheets for our students. And then what tends to happen is those who attend our summer school really really accelerate beyond belief because we are teaching them a whole academic year of study in three weeks and by the time they go back to school they're fully equipped in terms of many of the subject areas which the teacher is teaching them and are well in advance of their learning. Suzanne there are going to be people listening who are going to want more information to know how they can help their children through Little Big Leaders. Where do they go for more information? You can contact us right now on 0203 637 6266 which is a 24-7 answering service or you can send us an email to info at littlebigleaders.com. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Tony Honigberg and me today is community volunteer Andy Lucas and actress Kim Ismay. The subject today is based on Kate's interview we heard earlier on. The JMI are searching for the next generation of big band musical talent, So it got us thinking about the connection Jews have with music, and without a specific question in mind, we thought we'd explore that. Kim, let's start with you as someone who works in the arts. I thought that was going to (laughs) happen. And you perform on the stage. And no doubt, somewhere along the lines, there's been a Jewish connection somewhere. What do you think of hearing the term Jews and music? It's been a long connection, there's a lot of the great jazz musicians of the 20s and 30s and into the 40s were Jewish. In fact, a lot of the pop singers in the 40s and 50s, the, well, I should say pop singers, the popular singers were Jewish, but changed their names to make them a little more anglicised, as we all know. I'm finding fewer and fewer Jews in the entertainment industry generally. There were a lot of comedians were Jewish, a lot of musicians were Jewish, and there are fewer and fewer. I know that certainly if they're from in any way they won't work in the mainstream 
musical theatre because they'll have mm. to work on a Friday and a Saturday. So, of course, they won't work in the mainstream like musical theatre or some of the big bands and the big orchestras because if, if they are from there, then they simply can't, can't no, work no, because the, they're the built quite day, a the lot. Day day the, 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 the legends of particularly American musical oh, theatre, yes. are all Jews, the exception of Cole Porter. Exactly, yes, yeah. Cole, except Cole yeah. Porter, exactly. I mean, there's a famous story about Cole Porter who went, I think, to Irving Berlin and said, I don't know what's wrong, why nobody's listening to my songs? <laughs> and Irving Berlin said to him, well, you ought to try doing this. And he came back to Irving Berlin and said, you're absolutely right. And he'd written Night and Day. Yeah. which he'd written in a minor key That's and right. he'd always written before in major keys. Absolutely, and minor keys, always they always sell. And it's obviously Kletzmer is, is minor, so they, they tend to sort of resonate but more it's deeply. You think of all those voices, Irving Berlin, yep. George Gershwin. Gershwin's, well, George and Ira, both of them. And both of them, yeah. exactly. Rogers, Hammerstein, Rogers all of those. Yeah, yes. it was. Yeah, they were all Jewish. That's right. Without mm. the without the Jews in the industry, there would yep. not have been an industry. No, it would no. have been very. Slim the, on the the, the, certainly, the film industry would yeah. have been <laughs> well, much poorer. You've appeared in Wicked recently all over I the world. Have yes. Um, uh, was that written by a Jew? Yes, it was indeed, Stephen Schwartz. <laughs> yes, there you are. That's Absolutely. right, there you are. Absolutely. And some good music in there. Oh, yeah. He's a great writer. He is, he's a very, very clever man. Mm. There are lots of little musical jokes in Wicked that you, even after listening to the score for a year, depending on which musician you're listening to, in some venues, our, our um, timpani player, Murdoch McDonald, who is incredible, sometimes there's not room for him in the pit because his timp station is about the size of this room, probably a bit bigger. And so sometimes he can't fit in the pit, so they have him side of stage in a, a sound booth. And if you listen to what he's playing, sometimes you hear little tiny sections of The Wizard of Oz and films from the era and little homages. It's in, he's incredible. Stephen Schwartz is incredible. And Andy, what do you think of the, of the Jewish music world? I think it has been over the past however many years. It, it's been amazing because... All you could do is look at Neil Diamond and all of that sort of thing. But I believe that Kletzmer was originally a jazz type of music. Or the they, other they, way they round, I'm not sure. They turned it into a jazz yeah. music Yeah, they now, turned it they? in, that's yeah. right. Because it was I, an Eastern European Jewish... That's right, and it went to based, South yeah. America. Based, and it's, yeah. you know, they, they took it from Kletzmer, yeah. which is quite amazing. So the Jewish people have had a... Big input. Well, it even goes further back. If you go to the classical music side, there are people like Mendelssohn and Mahler. Yeah. Was Mahler Mm. Jewish? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) He converted, as did Mendelssohn. Mm. Mahler had to convert in order to become a musical director of some important orchestra. And I I think Felix Mendelssohn's father converted him, and I think his sister was called Fanny Mendelssohn, and their father converted them to Christianity so their musical talent wouldn't suffer because they're being Jewish, they yeah. may not have got where they were. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, that's yeah. very much And I think case, that was yeah. the story with the Mendelssohns. Because, of right. course, okay. his grandfather was Moses Mendelssohn. Mm. Yeah, who was very a, famous. A great Jewish philosopher. Mm. Mm. Yes. So the whole music world isn't totally... But it's because, if you think about it, even in synagogues, music is important. Mm. 
Exactly. You've oh, got yes. the most amazing cantors, be be they reform, orthodox or whatever, and ultra-orthodox, and they sing without music, and mm. that is amazing. It is. Their they, pitches are always, yes, they're, you know, they're incredible. Yes, they're perfect pitch. Mm. Yeah. We've got two who are just absolutely amazing in my synagogue. They've both sang opera in various different places. Cantoral is very operatic, isn't yes, it? Yes, it, it is very operatic. Although some of the more modern well, has or not is actually not so operatic in its in its outlook. It's, yeah. it can, I've seen some that's more jazz based, which is also very nice to listen yes, to. Absolutely. I have to say, I my paternal grandfather was a rabbi. And he was offered a job many hundreds of years ago, I suppose now, by the Carl Rosa Company. Ah. And my grandmother would not allow him to take the job because he would have to work on Friday nights. Mm. It's something you were talking about earlier, and I suddenly yeah. thought of that when you... But why is it that music and Judaism go together so much, do you think? Why is it? Who... Well, I think, it's sort of because, I think it's because of synagogue music. Mm. I think that's that's probably the one reason that I was listening many years ago to a, a program on Radio Four, and they were talking about Irving Berlin, and they picked one of his songs, and they said, "If you listen to this part, and I can't remember, I wish I could remember the song, this part of this music, they played this part of this music, and then they played the brachot for being called up." Mm. They played that, and you could hear that in this piece of popular music. Mm. As they played it, and they, they, they sort of matched one to the other. And you could hear the the show music within the popular music that Irving Berlin had written. Well, of course, so Irving, Berlin, from his childhood. Irving Berlin was a hazan, wasn't he? He was a cantor. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, yes he, he was. was That's how he started life. As did that famous did, uh, singer. Al Jolson. Al Jolson. Al Jolson, yes. Well, his father was, That's wasn't right. he? I see, yes. yes. I mean, what a voice that man had. Oh, it, uh, unusual, it unusual voice, but powerful, mm. powerful voice. They reckoned he could sing without a microphone and reach the back of an auditorium. Well, if a classical trained singer should mm. be able to do that. But he wasn't trained. This no, was but just well, a yeah, this is an, I mean, voice, a natural. Some people have a naturally powerful mm. voice, and but he also sang in a synagogue, so he would have yes, learned how to project. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Very because much you so. lose you yeah. lose the attention of the people a couple of rows back, and that's a thing that I think is being lost in this world of radio mics, as the mics get smaller and more powerful mm. and more particular and uh, sensitive. Sensitive. And that's else, the word yes. I was after. Particular might be right. Particular, but sensitive particular is good. and sensitive. <laughs> Describing myself now, um, <laughs> and I mean, when I'm working, we, we, I have two mics in case one goes. All the principals have two two microphones, and they're tiny. Hmm. They're less than half of the size of your little fingernail. One in your oh, hairline. Really? Both in the hairline. Both in the hairline. Both in the hairline. Unless, um, if a man has nothing to clip it to, it'll come across the ear and then yeah. round the front, like a jaw mic. But because the the last sort of I'd say ten years or so singers are coming up through the ranks and learning to sing but then when they perform they always perform with a mic and mm. amplification and subsequently we're not training the power that not we used to unless there. they're having a classical but training. there were times weren't there when some musicals were recorded and the people were miming to their own singing or is well, that only in the world of cinema that. no i don't think that's only in the world of cinema in film Probably. you have to lip sync to your own track because you can't well they always say oh Les Mis they all sang live it was so amazing well that's what everyone does in the theatre every night but mm. now I've just I've just had a sudden Ooh. thought we've been talking about all these Jewish singers and composers and all the rest 
from all, all sorts of music. But has there ever been, I can't for the moment myself think of anyone, a famous Jewish opera singer? There yes, should Richard be. Richard Tauber. Well, was Richard Tauber a Jew? Yes. Yeah. I thought he was of he was Jewish Austrian, descent. No, he was, well, he was Austrian Jew, as far as I know. Ah. No, I don't know, but I do know an opera singer, so I should I know ask him. <laughs> well, I had to leave Austria. I actually know an opera singer who is originally half Israeli, half American, but he lives in Israel now. It's my cousin's son-in-law. And in fact, I'm going out to hear him in... Give uh, us a name. Give us a name. Hanan. Hanan Leberman or something. And he married my cousin's daughter last right. year. And he's singing opera in... Mezzano in Italy mm. and I've wow. never been there so I'm going to hear him Oh lovely and he actually sang to her at the wedding he oh, it was just the most amazing thing um, and he sings with the National Opera he's sung at Glindbourne and he's sung all over the place because I was just thinking actually there is a singer whose surname is a well-known tenor at the moment I can't remember what his first name is but his surname is Kaufman Hmm. Now, he must it's have... It's got to be Jewish. There's got to be something going on there somewhere. 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 It's got a Jewish connection. Yeah, I would have thought so. I'll ask my friend yeah. Noah. My friend Noah Stewart is a, an incredible tenor, black American Harlem boy, and uh, he's just been singing in Central Park um, and at Eno. So I'll ask him and I'll say, right, how many Jews do you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give, them their, give us their names. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure, that, I'm sure there must be more than just a couple, you know. Yeah, around yeah. The world there must be quite a lot. But I, you say it's because... Is, is, it, is, it, because um, sorry, is it Jonas Kaufman? Yes, right, yes. Yeah, there we go. Sorry. Yes. He Got must be from I'd our say producer, definitely Phil. Then. Definitely. Yes. He yes. must be Jewish, mustn't, mustn't he? Be. Surely. Yeah, absolutely. And he is one of the most stupendous, stupendous singers. Well, if he isn't, let's just claim him. You were, yeah, we'll exactly. Him. Yes. <laughs> Everybody else seems to claim the Jewish people, so we might as well. Yeah. <laughs> now, mind is running over all the Jewish <laughs> yeah. names in the world. <laughs> They're frantically the trying to think world. of them all now. But of course, there is, of course, Barbara Streisand. Mm? <gasps> yes. And Which is probably the first one most people think of in the singing world. And then Neil Diamond and Neil Sedaka and... And, and, and Bobby Darren. Um, yes. Yeah. Bobby yeah. Darren, Jewish? Mm. Yeah. Oh, yes. Changed his name. Yeah. Oh. I don't know what it was before it was changed. Paul Anker. Paul Anker, Paul Anker. yes. Paul Anker, one. Canadian boy. Paul Anker's as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, again... So we cast again a little further back. You know, <laughs> than, than like, c- completely now. But why is it? It's not just vocal music. It's... All music, when you think in terms of most Jewish people that I know love music. I think live music, particularly, as you were saying about shul music and and any kind of religious music, but also we sing a lot. Mm. Jews sing a lot whenever there's any kind of service or in any kind of celebration or a hug or the hugim. Everyone sings and everybody joins in. And everyone joins in. Whether everyone, they, that's right. Whether, whether they, they can sing or not, uh, believe me, <laughs> whether they can or not. No. I think we are a joyous, on the whole, a joyous people. We love to moan, but mm. we love. We're on the whole, we're quite. We embrace which, which all is right. of the joy of life. Even, even when we're celebrating a festival which is a, an unhappy festival, we're singing. We're singing. We're singing. That's and right. the thing about live music is it stirs your soul. There is nothing like listening to live music. 
We couldn't end at a better place because I'm afraid our time is up. But my thanks to our guests. I ought to sing it, but of course I don't sing, so there we are. Community volunteer Andy Lucas and actress Kim Ismay. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. And you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue. Last Shabbat morning, my shul, Hendon Reform Synagogue, was filled wall to wall with congregants, more than 500, babies to baby boomers to centenarians. What was the occasion? A Yom Tov, a Bar Mitzvah, an Aufruf? None of these. It was the last formal Shabbat service before the merger of Hendon and Edgeway Reform Synagogues. Merger under one roof, one vision and mission statement, one Kehillah, one congregation. The much larger than usual Shabbat attendance was an appreciation of how much the shul had touched, enhanced the lives of these 500. For them, the shul was variously a source of Jewish learning, faith, identity, comfort, joy, friendship, community, guidance, and purpose. Some found God in themselves through working with the congregation to support Minyanim, visiting the housebound, attending classes, preparing Kiddushim. Some found the Selim Elohim, God's image, in their fellow congregants. Some congregants, as children, first heard and grasped concepts such as God, Torah, Israel, through the shul's nursery in Cheda. There they first learned the words of Manishtana and Mazdzor. Moreover, a shul, all shuls, are all embracing, tots, toddlers, teenagers, nonagenarians, centenarians. A shul is for the married and the single, for the Jewishly engaged and the Jewish alienated. For dwellers, those comfortable in the shul environment, and for seekers, those searching for God. So it is with great sadness that last week we read of the further decline in Anglo-Jewry synagogue membership. The synagogue, all synagogues, have much to offer any Jew who wishes to discover or express Jewish faith and identity, and also compassion, care, kindness and joy. With a Chad Ha'am's praise to Shabbat in mind, I would paraphrase that history has shown, more than the Jew has saved the shul, the shul has saved the Jew. Now the time has come for more Jews to embrace the shul and all it has to offer, so that we can save and strengthen the shul, so permitting it to do what it does best, offering faith, identity, community, comfort, joy, friendship, guidance and purpose for the good of the Jew and for the good of the Jewish people. Very relevant to me, that reflection, as Hendon Reform Synagogue, which Rabbi Katz is from, is to merge, as he's just said, with Edgware Reform, of which I have been a member there for a great number of years. So on a personal level, really, really interesting times lie ahead for a new era for both synagogues. Thank you very much indeed. I guess in that case to my rabbi, Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue, with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guests, Dave Shaw from Keshet UK, telling us about the Pride 2017 Jewish delegation, Raphael Knapp telling us about the JMI Youth Big Band, Sarah Coward from the National Holocaust Centre talking about their Forever Project. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. 
And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by going to our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the option to listen to all previous episodes as well. This episode of The Jewish Views is sponsored by Little Big Leaders. It is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.